Hello, everyone, and welcome to the session. I'm Vedahi, and I'll be the MC for today. I'd like to introduce our speaker, Eva Vivalt. Eva is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Toronto. Dr. Vivalt's main research is, uh, interest is investigating stumbling blocks to generating evidence-based policy decisions, including both methodological issues, as well as how evidence is interpreted and used. Dr. Vivalt is also a PI on Y Combinator Research's basic income RCT and has other interests in labor economics, development, and global priorities research. Dr. Vivalt is the founder of AidGrade, a research institute that generates and synthesizes evidence in international development, and co-founder of the Social Science Prediction Platform, a platform to coordinate the collection of forecasts of social science results. Today, Dr. Vivalt will be talking about choosing effective causes in a radically uncertain world. Uh, the talk will be approximately 15 minutes, followed by a live Q&A session. So without further ado, here's Eva. Today, I'll be talking about how to choose effective causes in a radically uncertain world. Now, for a bit of background, in 2012, I founded AidGrade, a nonprofit research institute that seeks to understand what works using meta-analyses of impact evaluations of development programs. Basically, there had been this explosion of randomized controlled trials or other rigorous quasi-experimental studies, and yet nobody was trying to synthesize those results. And so I thought, great, this is something we can do, and AidGrid gathered a lot of data. But a funny thing happened when I looked at those data, which is that the results were all over the place. This is not something that I was expecting, and it's not something that I wanted to see. I wanted results to be more generalizable. But this got me thinking more about generalizability and which results generalize, and more broadly, what to do when confronted with the limits of our knowledge. So that brings me to this talk today, um, where I'm gonna structure it as follows. First, I'm going to talk through the problem of why there's so much uncertainty. And then I'm going to discuss two approaches that you can use to try to deal with it. So first, let me take you through a thought experiment. Suppose you want to improve nutrition in Ecuador and you have three possible interventions that you could use. You could either just give people cash and they can buy the food themselves. You can give them vouchers with which to buy food or you can provide them with food in kind. Okay, so which of these three interventions do you want to do? Well, luckily in this artificial situation, you have data. I selected it based on this study from Hydrobo et al, where they exactly did this. They randomized which people got in-kind food versus cash versus vouchers. And here you see a table which shows um, how much it would cost to improve outcomes by 15%. So for example, if you want to boost caloric intake by 15%, it would cost $8.19 if you're providing food and much less if you're providing cash or vouchers. Okay, so this is actually, by the way, quite nice because you'll rarely get a table like this in an academic paper that actually really breaks down the costs. So this is great. Um, and these are, again, from a randomized controlled trial uh, where they had different treatment arms that were randomly assigned. So this is really the best case scenario. But it's also a situation that's really quite rare because the situation you're in 
more often is that you have results in one place and you want to know what results will be like somewhere else or even in the same place, but at a different point in time, like you ran it once, you want to run it again. And hopefully the first time something changed. Okay. So results could be different the second time you run it. Alternatively, you could be comparing interventions that were not actually evaluated in the context of the same experiment. So you've got one experiment done of cash transfers in Kenya and another project of microfinance in Mexico. How do you compare those two things, right? Um, there could be site selection bias. There could be other confounders uh, specific to the location, okay? Now, you can also think that another problem we face generally is that there's simply missing data. So we might be interested in the really long run effects of something and we don't have that information yet, or there could be spillover effects to other outcomes that are simply not observed in the context of the study. So for example, um, effects on institutions. So there are a lot of reasons why uh, you know, we don't have all the information we want. And just to walk you through one more concrete example of that. So this is a table from a recent paper of mine where I looked at uh, using eight grades data, essentially the generalizability of impact evaluation results in development. So what you'll see here are combinations of interventions and outcomes. So for example, conditional cash transfers, effects on attendance rates. And these are the standardized mean differences. So this is all in terms of standard deviations. And these are the interquartile range, maximum and minimum values, and the dots are the outliers. And even without even considering the outliers, you still have a lot of variation here. So again, it makes it hard to generalize and say, well, one study is uh, necessarily going to predict another unless you can model that a little bit better. And there's a more general point here, uh, which is, you know, let's seek to understand how this comes to be. And I would frame this in terms of heterogeneous treatment effects. So suppose there is some outcome that you're interested in, why, like enrollment rates, and you've got some treatment, so say cash transfers, and you're trying to estimate the impact of cash transfers on enrollment rates. Well, if you run regression with uh, this first equation, your beta sub one is going to be your point estimate, the effect of the treatment. But suppose in reality, you're, so you're estimating this equation, but in reality, uh, you have some other interaction term. So uh, for example, maybe the program works when government capacity is high and it doesn't work when government capacity is low. So say government capacity is A. Well, if the real state of the world is represented by the second equation, but you're estimating the first one, you're going to look like you've got these different beta sub ones in that first equation when you move from a place which has a high A or a low A, right? And that would be fine if this is all the complication that there was. You could plausibly have some shot of estimating this. But of course, in economics, the issue is that there are a lot of different possible interaction terms. You can think of endless things that the treatment effects could depend on. So this really gets kind of hopeless. So you kind of have this interaction effects all the way down. I like to illustrate this with turtles all the way down. Um, and when that interaction term changes, any of them change, the results will also change. And unfortunately, there's so many different variables that you are just never going to have enough data to try to estimate them all. This is known as the curse of dimensionality.
So the problem is that even randomized controlled trials will not get you there. So what can we do? Well, the first approach that I'd like to talk about is, you know, adding some kind of structure. And by structure, I'm putting this in quote marks because I mean this quite broadly. Some people will mean specifically structural models. Um, but you could also imagine simply getting a lot of data and trying to machine learn the thing or other approaches that are somewhat empirical and somewhat theoretical. So it's not really either or, and I don't mean structure to just refer to one particular kind of structure, uh, but you do need something else other than just your data. One a potential tool that you can use is forecasts. And I'm just giving this as one example. But the idea here is that people actually know a lot and luckily for you, they aggregate that information for you. So here there's this picture of a glacier that's supposed to represent that people have got a lot of knowledge, sort of submerged there, and they are giving you maybe a point estimate, maybe it's a distribution, but they're summarizing all those different possible interactions for you and giving you some forecasts of what they think will happen. It's quite nice. It's a nice summary stat. Um, and now we know that people can be wrong about things, so let's not you know, put 100% credence in these forecasts. But at least in principle, these forecasts could be debiased and we can try to learn more about how much we can trust them and when can we trust them and how should we adjust them. We can add machine learning to it. We can do all sorts of things like that. And also I want to note that you can use these forecasts not just to predict empirical results, you can also use them more to predict whether models are going to work. So right now I've got some ongoing work with a large collaboration of people where we're trying to ask people to forecast which models uh, will best predict COVID deaths. So there's a lot you can do with forecasts. However, any of these things is not going to get you all the way, nonetheless, okay? You can still improve the expected value of what you're doing, but it won't be perfect. There's just too many interaction terms. We don't know how important all of them are, and we don't even know all of the interaction terms. These are the unknown unknowns. So that was the first approach, but what else can we do? Well, we can try to look for some things that are robust to various states of the world, and also try to quantify the uncertainty. So what do I mean by robust? Well, for example, there are some interventions that may be theoretically more likely to work. So conditional cash transfers have a particular way in which you would expect them to affect enrollment rates. You know, they're conditioned on sending your kids to school. They should in all likelihood result in increased enrollment rates unless enrollment rates are already at 100%. There are some other interventions, like say microfinance, that need a more specific set of circumstances for them to work well. So for example, you need things to have, be messed up enough to have enough market failures that there's room for microfinance to help, and yet to not have the kinds of market failures that would prevent or other kinds of uh, situations that are a little bit messed up for it to not work at all. You need to have it, you know, just the right amount of screwed up. So, you know, and if you look at this uh, GIA paper that I referenced earlier, there I also see that conditional cash transfers actually do generalize better than microfinance, for example. 
So that's one kind of a way of having a robust strategy. You can also look at interventions that themselves try to improve resilience. What do I mean by this? Well, you can think of, for example, resilience within a person. Everybody, I think, is pretty familiar with this idea that you should have some kind of six-month emergency fund of savings so that if you're hit with a shock, you can go through that shock okay. Uh, you can also think of mental health as sort of a stock that you've got that will help you weather any kind of uh, shocks or social networks. You can also think of resilience across people. And this is a little bit closer to what some people are thinking of when they're talking about mitigating existential risk. So more particularly, think of investing um, to spend in future disasters. You don't know what those disasters might be necessarily, but you have got some kind of buffer to uh, be resilient to potential future shocks. And you can also think of quantifying uncertainty. So in some of my own work, I've looked at Bayesian modeling, where I look at um, unexplained residual variance in study results. After you try to throw everything else that you possibly can into your models, you know, what sort of remains, you can try to quantify that. You can also look at forecasts of forecast accuracy. So don't just get forecasts, but also attach to each forecast some kind of estimate of how confident we can be in it. And you can even, you know, go, go a step further and get forecasts of forecasts of forecast accuracy, right? But I do want to point out that maximal robustness itself is not necessarily optimal either, right? I mean, most of the effective altruism community is really trying to maximize expected value, and maximal robustness isn't necessarily the tool for the job. It might be, in some respects, closer to a max-min approach where you're maximizing the worst possible outcome, right? Now, max-min and expected value strategies can coincide. And it's also possible that increasing robustness can maximize expected value. So think of something like, you know, if you're really concerned about climate change, then mitigating that could both be the maximum approach as well as expected value. They can coincide. But I just want to point out it's not necessarily the case that they will. You could have something which has got a really, really low chance of working um, or having an effect. And even if you have really huge gains in the tiny probability, the probability could just be too small. It's not worth dealing with in some sense for it, from the expected value perspective. So, okay, but hang on, you might reasonably ask, does increasing robustness have the same problem that we just don't know even how to do it? <laughs> and fair enough, that's a completely fair question. Nonetheless, I would argue that it's quite possible that trying to increase robustness, at least up to a certain point, could still be the best that we can do to maximize expected value. And certainly, I think we need to learn a lot more about the things that we currently don't know, to have a better idea of what does maximize expected value. So I think we need more focus on issues of robustness. And it's fine if we don't get it 100% right. After all, uh, effective altruism isn't about necessarily getting it right. It's simply about doing the best we can. So I'll leave you there and open this to questions, but here is a link to the social science prediction platform, which is where we're gathering forecasts of research results in the social sciences. If 
you're interested, and also my contact information so we can follow up that way. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for that talk, Eva. Um, so to begin with, I'd love to learn more about the social science prediction platform. Could you talk a little bit um, more about that? Sure. Um, so this is a joint effort uh, with Stefano Della Vigna. And essentially, we thought that it would be good to forecast research results. Um, so you might have heard of some other forecasting initiatives out there, like um, the super forecasters uh, type of work, or um, also there are some replication markets or replicats um, doing some forecasting of whether a particular study will replicate. Um, so our platform is looking at predicting effects and not just effect, but also summary stats, um, distributions sometimes. So um, it's open to, well, basically any academic study in the social sciences. We've got some economics, we've got some political science, um, and hopefully at some point we'll get some other disciplines too. I think we've got some psychology. Um, the reason for the platform, there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, um, but essentially you can imagine that by forecasting things, you can see how accurate you are and um, hopefully, because there's some ground truth out there with the studies when they've got results coming in. And then you can start to learn about you know, what kinds of biases people have. If you actually have a lot of these studies, in the long run, maybe you can sort of start to use that to fill in some of the gaps in your knowledge. Like we can't run all the studies that we want to run. It would be good to have forecasts if they're even a little bit informative. They're going to be biased. That's fine. But we can learn about those biases a bit. Um, so that's part of the thought. You can also learn about updating um, how people update their beliefs. Uh, more generally, the, we hope the platform can improve the interpretation of research results because actually uh, there's a subtle point here, but if uh, you're Bayesian, then if you see some result coming in, even if it uh, says that some particular thing was statistically significant, how you interpret that is going to depend a lot on your priors. And it could be the case that you know, it's a really random thing and you think, wow, that's really unlikely. They're, they might have, you know, tried to p-hack that or something or might, that just might have been, you know, random chance that they got that result. Um, but it can also help to sort of gauge the uh, novelty of a result. So there's, I think, a lot of different uses. I mean, I won't even be able to get into all the uses now. You can use it to, you know, mitigate publication bias. You can use it to improve your experimental design. I mean, I can talk endlessly about that, but I see there's a bunch of questions maybe so yeah yeah so yeah actually one question that is related to this um i think is um as if the problem is not enough data um will causal infer inference tools such as rdds ivs or even graphical models um help to create more studies for meta-analysis um and do you ever foresee there being enough data in the field um for machine learning to be useful yeah so that's a good question so um First of all, machine learning is a little bit useful right now within the context of doing research projects. So for example, you may have a experiment where you um, actually weren't able to properly randomize or there was some attrition. So maybe you started out with something random, but by the end, the people who are there, you know, are not completely random in the end. And you need to try to figure out, well, how can I sort of adjust for that. And um, 
so take uh, some situation where normally you would maybe try to, I don't know, match these people and their characteristics in some way, rather than you yourself saying, oh, I'm going to select these particular variables that they've got to be similar along. You could try to use machine learning to try to uh, identify some of the um, variables that you really would like them, the treatment group and the control group to be similar along. Uh, so you can use it for things like that already, like feature selection or whatever, right? So it, it already has some use. Um, there is, of course, a problem, yeah, not enough data. Um, and uh, worse, a lot of studies are not even collecting the same kinds of variables. So that's the main limitation when you talk about meta-analysis. So meta-analyses rely on your having interventions and outcomes that you can compare and that set really matters and so if there's not very much overlap in that set because everybody wants to do the first study on something nobody wants to continue to build it up and you're just not going to have that much data there um, you could try to model things at a little bit of a higher level so I know for example in education they do a lot of um, essentially assuming that a lot of variables are somewhat similar to one another. So it's just like, is this an education-related variable? Okay, did it change? Um, and they don't care so much, like, was it enrollment rates? Was it test scores? Um, you can lump a lot of those things in and sort of um, have some kind of hierarchical model where the specific outcome is uh, part of that model, but you're doing the model over more outcomes. Nonetheless, I mean, you, you just don't have enough data yet. So I think it's informative. I think it's good. And, it, you know, obviously as much data as we can get, the better. Um, but that said, you know, it's, there's, there's still going to be holes. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't see a way around getting, yeah. Right. So how, how do you see um, sort of the, uh, something like the prediction platform, I guess, uh, which part of this problem does it address? Or is it kind of attacking it from a very different, it sounds like it's attacking it from a different sort of angle, but I'd be curious how they kind of interrelate. Yeah, uh, so my vision of the platform now, as I say, it does many, many things and some of them relate and some of them sort of indirectly relate. So for example, I mentioned it has the potential to mitigate publication bias. Well, that is because the, um, Currently, the publication incentives are to try to find results that are like marginally statistically significant or, you know, great is if they're more statistically significant. However, the issue is that, um, you know, of course, that results in publication bias. And you can imagine if we were judging forecasts, uh, judging studies by what they were contributing to knowledge, we would be essentially selecting on something else. We would be selecting on how much novelty they were bringing. So, okay, maybe that's another sort of different kind of uh, publication bias in a way, but you are at least mitigating that first issue. Um, and so in a way you are increasing, you could uh, use this to try to identify which are the areas where we don't know very much. There's a lot of disagreement about what is the ground truth. So where a study could add a lot of value. Um, so you know, that's kind of a little bit getting at it sort of a little bit circuitously in terms of, um, you know, we we know we don't know very much um, and that can be used to direct the topics. But as I say, like the more the, the more direct route is that if we can improve forecast accuracy um, and 
we can learn more about when forecasts are likely to be correct, then we can start to use them when we don't necessarily have evidence from a randomized controlled trial. And we could even get you know some other forecasts sort of traveling along with them. So you have your forecast of what the effect will be, but maybe you've got some distribution of forecasts, or maybe you have some estimate of the, your own uncertainty um, with that. So I think that it does have that potential. I think that is a little bit far off. I don't want it to sound like, oh yeah, that's like right around the corner, just wait next year and we'll be at that point. That's, that's not true. I think it'll be quite a while until we actually have enough information to start to really grapple with that. But at least, you know, as, and again, I don't expect it to solve all the problems. I just expect it to help. And that is, you know, I, so long as it helps a little bit um, in nudging it in that direction, I think it's a good direction to, to take. So That's great. So unfortunately, we are at time. Uh, but thank you so much, everyone, for watching. And thank you, Eva, for this talk. Um, it was really interesting.